Well, thank you again for making the time and uh, taking the time to join and listen in and uh, to learn from one another. I believe people's stories really matter and we can unlearn what we thought was what is right. One that has a tremendous story is Dr. Stephen Elliott. Dr. Elliott, thank you for uh, making the time today. You're welcome. Happy to join you. And so you are a professor at Kingswood, where I went, my alma mater, and uh, you said that classes begin next week. Can you just talk about what you anticipate for this coming year? Well, uh, we, we were in person all last year, even during COVID. Uh, our in-person enrollment was down, but our online enrollment was way up. Uh, roughly 100 and some that were on campus and over 200 that were joining us online uh, here at the school. So we navigated all the complexities of last year uh, fairly well. Nobody got sick. And uh, actually, New Brunswick in Canada is a very, very safe place to be. We've, uh, I think, the total in the last two years, I think we've had like 60 deaths in the entire province. And so um, it's a very, very safe place to be. I've been telling our enrollment department, they actually need to use that as part of their marketing strategy, telling parents if they love their kids, send them to New Brunswick where they'll be safe. <laughs> uh, and then for myself, I am in Vermont, and I remember when I attended, I think it was about 40% we had U.S. Uh, students versus out of Canada. Is that still roughly the ratio? And I know with the border being closed this last year, how difficult was that to adjust for the uh, on-campus students? Yeah, I don't know what the actual percentages are, but it's typically 40 to 45 percent of our students are American. Uh, about 50 percent of our students are Canadians and about 5 percent of our students are international from Korea and New Zealand. Uh, we've got a number of Haitian students that are here right now. And so, yeah, it's still very international. Um, of course, the international students, when they came last year, they had to do the two-week quarantine thing, and we made all those provisions so the students were able to freely cross into Canada. Uh, we just had to guarantee to the government that uh, they were properly quarantined for the initial two weeks. And then as soon as that was over, they were full participants on campus. And uh, um, even as I sit here right now, I think there's a few students that are in quarantine uh, in preparation for the beginning of next week. And then uh, off we go with, with the new semester. So yeah, it's a, it's a great place to be. I love what I do, love our students, uh, love the opportunity to invest in the next generation. Well, Dr. Elliott, the reason why I wanted to bring you on primarily is you wrote a book. It's um, by Signs and Wonder, and I uh, just want to bring this up as well. You spoke at the district conference, this district assembly. I always get them confused between the Wesleyans and the Nazarenes. But can you just share what led you to write this book? Um, it actually, the, the genesis of it actually began years and years ago. Uh, my wife and I had planted a church in uh, one of the suburbs of Ottawa, which is the capital city in Canada. And uh, for about the first 13 years, we grew very, very slowly. Uh, we started with just my wife and I. I knew two other people that were living in the community, but they were going to another church. So literally, it was Helen and I that were the, the nucleus of the church. We just started introducing ourselves to people. And, and we grew to about 120 people, roughly. Uh, during that first 13 years, and people thought that you know the church was doing fairly well as a as a church plant, um, but I knew that we were not impacting our community nearly the way that God wanted us 
perspective. Um, and although we had 120 some people that were coming to the church, almost everybody that was there was really transfer growth from uh, another church, like, you know, Wesleyan or Free Methodist or Pentecostal or Baptist, they just swapping churches back and forth. Or as Dr. Kanzamar says, uh, a lot of churches just become keepers of goldfish bowls, swapping goldfish back and forth. They're not really fish or fishing for men. Yeah. And so I was doing everything that I had ever been taught to do as it related to outreach and evangelism. Um, I, I did a lot of uh, cold door to door and I never stopped in my 22 years of pastoring Canada. I never actually stopped doing that. I literally knocked on thousands of doors and introduced myself, invited people to church. We did evangelistic crusades. We distributed the Jesus video. You know, we did small groups. We had you know, just anything that you can think of, uh, a lot of different um, creative things like the rally days and brought in all kinds of people that people might uh, be interested in coming to hear. Um, but after about 13 years, I was really discontent with what I was seeing, how the church was not advancing. The community was growing very, very rapidly, and we were not. And so for, uh, for a period of time, I just shut down all of our outreach and evangelism efforts. And I and I decided I was going to do a Bible study, which I probably should have done that way back in 1983 when we first started. But I wanted to discover what what was it? What was the reason why the church in the first century exploded with growth through the, uh, the Mediterranean seacoast? And especially knowing that it was a vehemently anti-Christian environment, and yet the church grew from 120 in the upper room to about five million people within just a, you know, just within a number of, of years. And out of that study, there was a number of things that that I could have told you even before I started the uh, the study. I, I knew that the church was a praying church. I knew the church the believers were usable and available to God. I knew the Holy Spirit was uh, still gifting people with gifts of evangelism. And Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. So I, I knew the Holy Spirit was working. But out of that study, there were two things that absolutely shocked me. Um, the first thing that shocked me was I was not prepared for how frequent Miracle signs and wonders were in the conversion stories of people uh, in the New Testament. Um, at least 50% of the conversion story, there's an identifiable miracle that's just happened or either to the individual or in close proximity to the person. So the, the clearest example of that would be the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, we know that story. He'd been in the tomb for four days. Uh, Jesus says, roll away the stone. Lazarus come forth. Lazarus comes out, and, and we've got the raising of the dead. But the very last verse of that story says, their faith in him. And I remember when I was doing my study of, a, of all these conversion stories in, in the New Testament, I remember thinking when I was reading that, duh, if I had just seen a dead guy come back to life, I would have put my trust in Jesus too. Um, and, and like at least 50% of the stories that you see in the New Testament where people are coming to faith in Christ, there's an identifiable miracle. I, I had not realized how frequent miracle signs and wonders were in the conversion stories. That was the first of the surprises. The second surprise was how infrequent lifestyle or friendship evangelism was in the mm. conversion stories. Now, in fairness, there are a few. The, the, the most notable one would be this, uh, the passage in Peter where it says that if, an, if a believing wife 
as an unbelieving husband, he can be yeah. won over without talk by the behavior of, of his wife when he sees her good and, and godly character. Um, and so there are a few places where the godly character, the friendship um, of, the, of the individual that's doing the, uh, the presenting of the gospel message is a factor. But what surprised me was that it only accounts for less than 1% of the conversion stories in the Bible. Mm. And yet I had been trained that lifestyle or friendship evangelism was the biblical method of evangelism, yeah. and it was the most effective. And it's just patently not provable by Scripture. Um, the role of miracle signs and wonders is far more persuasive to people than how we live as Christians. Um, so, and that's not to say, of course, we're supposed to live good godly lives and we're supposed right. to be friendly individuals, but they're not a persuasive influence on people uh, to persuade them to give up their former belief system or their lack of, of, of belief system and put their faith in God. And so that shocked me, those two discoveries about how frequent uh, lifestyle evangelism is or how infrequent lifestyle evangelism right, right. plays in conversion stories and how frequent miracle signs and wonders were. So that then put me on a whole new quest to say, well, if it is true that lifestyle evangelism does not uh, persuade very many people to put their faith in Christ, but miracle signs and wonders do, what impact should that have upon our local church? Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm a, I'm a Wesleyan pastor, and you know, we, we don't, you know, some of the charismatic expressions of, uh, of the power of the Holy Spirit is not actually all that frequently talked about in our, in our midst. So we just very gently began introducing, um, you know, praying for the sick in our services, uh, became open to words of prophecy, words of knowledge, um, visions, dreams, and all that kind of stuff, uh, discerning of spirits. We became gently open to that kind of stuff in our services. And what happened was just, I can't tell you how dramatically it changed what our church, uh, how effective we were as a church. We had been growing at a rate of about 10 people per year up until that point. And when we placed a greater emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, we just started exploding with growth. Um, wow. We were averaging someplace around 75, 100 new people into the church staying from that point on. And by the time that we left about seven or eight years later, we were just bridging over a thousand and an average attendance or actually not average but we were just breaking through yeah. the thousand person barrier uh in our in our church services and people that look at the graph and and they see you know us growing very slowly and then all of a sudden there's dramatic uh increase they said what happened in 1997 uh, what changed and uh, if i had to put my finger on the one thing i would say it's it was our emphasis on the personal work of the holy spirit and Dr. Elliot, the book we're referring to is your book, By Signs and Wonders. And I just want to, uh, there's so many qualifiers that I want to make, but I'm not going to, I was just going to share. So I grew up, the standard church that merged with the Wesleyan several years ago. We had a mm -hmm. church camp in which I was a kid, I was little, and there were individuals slain in the spirit. And the standard church, Pilgrim Holiness, you could say they were the most legalistic bunch that there were. You couldn't, my mom remembers her mother, my grandmother, not wearing any colored uh, clothing. It was all black and she always had her hair up in a bun. And so that's, but there was something about the Holy Spirit that was just 
remarkable. And frankly, it kind of scared me. It made me nervous. And my parents had to explain what was taking place. And that was scary. But I remember also seeing healings. We always had a camp healing service. And there were times where people were legitimately, remarkably, miraculously healed. And that was just phenomenal. For yourself, when you talk about signs and wonders, miracles, are you referring to things of this nature? Or mm -hmm. could you just press into that a little bit more? Sure. It's really it's a full gamut of, of everything that is uh, consistent with power evangelism. It's uh, visions, it's dreams, it's prophecies, it's words of knowledge, it's uh, slain in the spirit. It's that sense of awe at the, the, the presence of God. It's uh, words of knowledge. It's, uh, it's, it's a full gamut asking for God to miraculously heal people. And so we just began incorporating as much of that type of thing uh, into our midst as we possibly could both in our public worship services and nurturing it as well uh, through Alpha. If, if anybody's taken an Alpha course, yeah. certainly knows about the Holy Spirit weekend um, and in our small group settings. And uh, we saw some really dramatic, uh, miraculous things that happen. Um, words of knowledge became fairly frequent in our midst. Prophecies became fairly frequent in our midst. Uh, never saw the dead raised. I wanna be clear on that, although I would certainly have loved to have seen that. Um, but uh, probably the most uh, dramatic healing that took place was something that actually took place with one of my wife's very best friends. Uh, Helen was mentoring this lady, and she had very, very aggressive breast cancer. Uh, her breasts were filled with, with tumors, and they were going to remove her breasts. And uh, she was over at the house, and Helen and her were having a prayer time. And uh, Helen felt that God said to her just in a moment that, that uh, Marianne was healed. And uh, Helen said to, to Marianne, she says, did God say anything to you? And Marianne said, well, I felt like God said, you know, my peace is with you or something like that. And Helen said, okay. And Marianne said, well, did you hear something different? And Helen says, well, I felt like God said you're healed. And Marianne says, I heard that too. I was just too scared to say it. <laughs> and interestingly, her husband who was working on the far side of Ottawa, his name's Bruce, um, he heard the exact same thing at the exact same time. And so Marianne, who was scheduled to have her breasts removed, uh, actually asked for an appointment with her, her surgeon and said, would you please do one more set of ultrasounds on my breasts? And he said, well, we don't need to. He says, we know your breasts are filled with tumors. And she said, just humor me. Would you please do one more set of ultrasounds on my breasts? And they did. And there were no tumors. They were all wow. gone. Um, and so that's probably the most dramatic story. But there's also tons of other stories of a, of a smaller degree of God's miraculous intervention into people's lives, miraculous provisions, how God provided just in astounding ways in situations that were just at some point, uh, uh, any fair minded person has got to say, this is more than coincidence. You know, it's not just oh, well, maybe that might have happened. Like when it happens over and over and over and over again, any fair-minded person has got to say, there's something else going on here than just uh, something that's coincidental. And we have a good uh, family friend, Dr. Stephen Elliott, making some time and uh, sharing with us from his book, uh, By Signs and Wonders. Perhaps you know him, it's Larry Hart and uh, Larry and Sharon Hart. They've been part um, of the our church sphere for a long time. And he actually worked with... Um, 
Oh, now I just forgot his name, but Dr. They, uh, Ron Miller. Yes, exactly. And uh, um, Larry Hart always said he usually prefaced things by saying, it seems to me like God is saying, because he understands he's human, but he also said that his gift of discernment, there's a strong correlation between how much time he's in God's word and when he hears from God. Could you just talk about that? Do some people just have a gift where character integrity might not line up, so to speak? Or is there that strong correlation of just being so dependent and surrendered to God where you hear more clearly? The, the person that's my go-to person when it comes to the issues of the miraculous is a guy named Dr. Ian Dunn. He's a Wesleyan pastor that's just north of, of Ottawa. And I've known Ian for many, 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 many years. Uh, he is an academic. He is he is not a flash in the pan. He's not a you know big charismatic personality. He's a very quiet, bookworm, studious, very steady individual. But he hears incredibly accurate from God, like eerie accurate from God. Um, so as a small example, um, he and I were speaking at a family camp down in Michigan uh, just before COVID, and uh, we were walking to the tabernacle, this family camp, and uh, he said to me, he said, oh, God just told me something about somebody that's in the service. And uh, and I said, this is like a word of knowledge. And I said, oh, great. I said, why don't we incorporate that into our service tonight? And so at the end of the service, he came up and he said, um, he said, and I, I may have the names wrong here because I'm I wasn't expecting to be talking about this. So if, if my names are wrong, it's it's unintentional. It's just on, in the spur of the moment here. But he came up to the front and he said, there's somebody here and you know somebody named Sam and God has called you to be a world changer and your name is Sue. And the place just went dead silent. And so he said it again. He said, your name is Sue. You know somebody named Sam. And God has called you to be a world changer. Who are you? And nobody moved. And so he said, Ian said, well, sometimes I mishear from God, but I'm pretty sure that's what God said. Anyways, the service ended. And he and I were standing at the front. And out of my peripheral vision, I see this lady coming. And she walks up to the front. And I'm standing there. This is not secondhand. I'm standing there experiencing this. And she said to Ian, she said, you know what you said during the service? And Ian said, yeah. She said, I just need to introduce myself. She said, my name is Sue. My grandfather's name is Sam. And yesterday, my grandfather told me God has called me to be a world changer. Wow. Now, we have never been to Michigan. It's certainly not at this family camp. Like, I don't know this lady from a hole in the ground. And I know Ian doesn't know her ever in right. any context. Like, how could he possibly know that? I mean, it's impossible. Hmm. So, and there's, now I could tell you dozens of stories that are similar to that. But when we were walking back to our cabin uh, where we were staying, I said to Ian, I said, how do you hear so incredibly accurate from God? And he said to me, he said, I hear most accurately from God during my private times of worship with my Heavenly Father when I'm just adoring on God and mm. worshiping him and thanking him and praising him, it's in that context that I hear from God. And that was one of those times where I heard something and it just rang true to me. It just, it, it didn't seem like this was a contrived 
statement that he was saying to me that really rang true that, yes, of course, what did Jesus do? He often went into the, the mountains alone to pray and to commune with his heavenly father. And then he would come down. And, and what did he say? He said, I only say what the father gives me to say. Well, when did he hear it? Well, we assume when he heard it is in his private times of, of aloneness with, with, with God the Father. And so I believe, and I believe Ian was absolutely 100% correct, that he we hear best from God during our own private times of worship, uh, where we're just being vulnerable, we're repentant, we're expressing faith and confidence in the character, the nature, the power, the abilities of God. So, Dr. Elliot, two questions in one. Hopefully, I don't get you in trouble with either. Uh, Dr. Elliot serves uh, as the National Superintendent of the uh, Church in Canada, Wesleyan.ca. I'll just bring up this website so you can see that as well. And as we mentioned before, he's also on staff at Kingswood University. The question is, who finds it easier to believe or go after these things of God students that seem to be more idealistic or pastors that have had that experience and really needed God to work in those ways? There is a direct correlation between boldness and conviction. Hmm. If a person is not convinced something is true, they will not be bold about something. So for instance, let me give you a little silly example. If you said to me, you know, um, Where's your sister? I would say, I think she's at our family cottage up at Silver Lake. And I'm kind of vacillating because I just don't know for sure. Then if you said to me, do you know if Jetty is your son? And I would go, yeah, he's my son. There's no doubt about that. And, and you say, well, how do you know? And I said, well, I was there when he was born. And he's got the same birthmark that I've got, that my dad has, that my grandfather has. Like, there is no doubt that he is, he is my child, and I know he's my child. So I'm being bold and definitive in the statement that Jetty is my son because I'm convinced. If I'm not convinced about something, then I'll vacillate and I'll be un, 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 unsure in, in the pursuit of something or in the statement about something. I could not have leaned heavily into the personal work of the Holy Spirit if I had not done my own personal Bible study into yeah. this topic. Yeah. And as I did my research, biblically, first of all, and then I began looking more historically as well, um, I became absolutely convinced that the, uh, you know, some people are dispensationalists. They believe that um, cessationists, meaning that they believe that the power of gifts ended with the, uh, the last of the disciples in the first century. Now, I don't believe that at all. I'm absolutely convinced that the miraculous activity of God's Holy Spirit has continued unabated uh, since the, the upper room. And when, when you look to see where the church is growing around the world, yes, there are, there are churches that, are, that uh, believe that the gifts have, have ceased, uh, the miraculous uh, gifts have ceased. But generally speaking, where the, where the church is exploding with growth around the world, they lean heavy into the Holy Spirit. And the, the massive, another massive surprise to me, I mean, you talked about Ralph Horner, Dr. Ralph Horner, uh, the founder of the Standard Church and and some of the history of the Standard Church of America. Um, I'm fourth generation Westland, and I had never, ever, ever heard of how frequent miracle signs and wonders were in the in the ministry of John Wesley. Yeah. And I can remember years ago, long before I ever discovered this. I mean, John Wesley was fairly short in stature, and 
and you know, here's thousands of people are coming to hear this guy preach. And I can remember years ago thinking, really, no PA system. Like, I mean, Charles Wesley's music. I mean, was it like, you know, was it uh, so amazing that it just drew all these people? Like, was right. he such a powerful speaker? Well, when you actually look into it, um, the reason that so many people came to hear John Wesley is because miracle signs and wonders were so frequent mm -hmm. in his ministry. As a matter of fact, there's one letter that, that was written, uh, a, a contemporary of John Wesley, that said that if Wesley was preaching and did not see any evidence of the miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit, he would actually stop the service and say, Lord, where are thy signs and tokens to prove thy message? Wow. And the author of the letter said, every time John Wesley said that, when he prayed, Lord, where are thy signs and tokens to prove thy message? He said, in every instance, the congregation would just fall prostrate uh, under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Mm. Well, I never heard anything of that nature growing up as a Wesleyan. I mean, I went to a Wesleyan Bible College. I went to Asbury Seminary. I, nobody had ever talked to me about how frequent miracle signs and wonders were in uh, Wesley's ministry. We are the people that have deviated from our own history. Mm. You know, our history is just filled with references. Um, and I mean, you, you talk about growing up in the standard church and people being slain in the spirit and you know, doing the dance around with their hankies and all the rest of that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I can remember some of that as a, as a boy growing up as well, even in some of the Western circles. So, you know, we're the ones that have moved away from that type of uh, emphasis. And, and I find today there's a massive interest in the personal work of the Holy Spirit. The, the book that, you, that you're referencing by Signs and Wonders, How the Holy Spirit Grows, uh, Grows the Church, that book was published, I don't know, like three or four years ago. I cannot tell you how many people have written me to say that the book articulates exactly what they've been feeling, but they didn't have the vocabulary for it. And, and I'm sure there are people that hate it. I mean, I'm, I'm not naive. I've been around long enough to, to know that not everybody likes everything um, that I might write or something like that. But I will tell you that since the book came out, I've only had one person push back on the content of that book. Wow. And it's a dispensationalist from, or it's a cessationist from England who doesn't believe that miracle signs and wonders are still happening today, that anything that happens like that has got to be uh, the work of Satan. So other than that one person, every other person that has corresponded with me has said, boy, this is articulating exactly what we're feeling is the need of the church for today. So, Dr. Elliot, there's the expression that some people are so spiritually minded, they're no earthly good. Where's that balance for a pastor to uh, to be in, or should there be that balance? Well, we're so overbalanced the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would rather people lean more heavy into the personal work of the Holy Spirit because we've been so fearful for generations mm -hmm. um, of anything that smacks of the charismatic expressions of, of the Spirit. And so I don't know, Jeff, that's a great question. But we've been so tilted away from um, these things that, you know, the, the swing in the opposite direction. I'm I'm sure that at some point we'll swing back a little bit, maybe, you know, into something that's a little bit more moderate. But my goodness, I, I just wish that we would all lean more heavy into asking God to do his miraculous activity. And 
there's a Baptist church on the outskirts of, of Sussex here, and um, they've just had modest growth over the years. Um, but their pastor came across my book, and he decided as a Baptist church that they were going to start putting it into, into practice. And the stories that he's telling of yeah, people yeah. that had never, ever darkened the door of the church, and now they're hearing of what's been happening at the church, that people that they never, ever thought in their community would ever get saved have come to saving faith in Christ because it's almost impossible to be um, apathetic yes. in the presence of something that's miraculous. When right. you know it's authentic, when you know the person that had hearing loss, or you know the person that couldn't see properly, or this person has been crippled up with back pain or whatever this thing is, uh, or when God is giving words of knowledge or, or prophetic things that, that come to pass. Like, it's very hard to be apathetic right. um, in that type of a situation. And it piques people's interest. It's the number one reason why people came to see Jesus. They came to see the miracle signs and wonders. They mm -hmm. stayed because of the wisdom of what he was sharing and because such love was exuding from him. But what drew the crowds was the miracle signs and wonders. Mm -hmm. So true. Dr. Elliot, where did you grow up? Were your parents Christians? When did you realize that you wanted to be a Jesus follower yourself? Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm fourth generation Wesleyan, as I said. Um, I'm the first pastor in our family. Uh, my my great grandfather was um, immigrated into, uh, into Quebec from overseas. And then my dad was born um, in Ontario. And then uh, after the Second World War, my grandfather and my dad and the family moved to Belleville, Ontario. And that's where my dad met my mom. And that's where I was born and my sister was born. So I grew up in Belleville, Ontario. Uh, my wife was born just north of Belleville in a place called Bancroft. And we met in high school. So we're high school sweethearts. And uh, I had no call of God in my life. Um, when I was in my teens and into my early 20s. Mm. Now, I did come to Bethany Bible College, which is now Kingswood University. I came for the one-year program, the Christian Development yeah. Program, just because I wanted to be more firm in my faith and know more about Scripture. But when I finished my one-year program at, um, at Kingswood, uh, I started working for a company that made heavy mining equipment, uh, about 600 employees. I worked in the office for them. And then I became a professional photographer, and uh, my wife's a nurse, and so... Uh, we, we had a very, very comfortable life. We didn't have any kids. My mortgage payments were like 100 bucks on the house that we built. And so, I mean, we were very comfortable. But uh, one day I was sitting in my photography office and uh, all my display pictures were up on the walls around me, all the brides and dogs and grand poobahs, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And just like that, God spoke to me and he said, they're all going to burn someday. And I knew exactly what God meant by that, um, that I was giving an incredible amount of time to, thing that, to something that had no eternal significance. You know, I, I can remember spending eight hour days in a dark room developing pictures. Hmm. And pictures have no eternal significance, not really. I mean, people put up their, you know, their pictures for a year or so, and then they get very dated, and then they hide them away yeah. in scrapbooks and things like that. And so that was in November. I remember when it happened, it was in November, and and I knew that God had to call my life to become a pastor, and I did not want to become a pastor. I knew it would mean, you know, selling the business and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So I was just a miserable son of a gun for the next four months, and I never told Helen anything about it. She had no clue why I was so grumpy. 
And finally, in February of that year, uh, that would have been February of 1982, um, I said to Helen, I said, what do you think of the idea? We sell the house, we sell the business, you quit nursing, we moved back to New Brunswick and uh, I finished ministry training and, and I become a pastor. And I was just ready for like something to hit the fan, you know, because <laughs> I thought there is no way Helen's going to be supportive of this. I mean, her family is extremely, extremely tight knit. Her mom and dad live in one house. Her brother lives next door. Her sister lives directly across the street. Like Helen's family is very, very tight knit. And I thought the prospects of us leaving the Belleville area and going off into ministry. And Helen's immediate response was, if you think that's what God wants us to do, let's do it. Wow. And it totally flabbergasted me. I had no idea. So that was the first of the confirmations that God was actually in it. That Sunday night, we, we still had Sunday night services at that point. And uh, at church, uh, the pastor asked for testimonies that night, and which wasn't uncommon. So I stood up and I said, I think God's got to call my life to become a pastor. And we're thinking of, uh, of making a tr transition. After the service was over, um, the widow of the pastor that I grew up with, his name was Dr. J.S.A. Spearman, she was still in the church, even though her husband had died. And as soon as the service was over, she came up to me, and she grabbed onto my hand, and she said, God always said, Jim always said, God had a call on your life to be a pastor. Hmm. And that was kind of like the second confirmation now that maybe God is actually in this thing. And so we came here. I had no intentions of being a church planter. Never crossed my mind to be a church planter. Uh, but God made it very clear that's how he wanted us to, to serve when we first graduated from the school. So Christmas uh, time, we, we moved to Ottawa and planted the church. And 22 years later, we started to transition uh, from there to eventually here teaching at the school. So. So planning a church versus going on staff at a church, why do you think that was the case for you? Um, I think one of the reasons it was it was successful is because I was such a cultural fit with the Ottawa area. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I discovered very quickly in ministry that uh, as our church began to grow and I had to start hiring staff, in my early days, I was not cognizant of how important cultural fit was and so, you know, we, we brought in some people, wonderful, godly people, like amazing, wonderful people, but did not fit the culture of Ottawa. And so they really floundered. And uh, I will tell you, Jeff, you, you wouldn't know this unless I would tell you that the school building that we started in, um, uh, I got to know the principal and I asked if we could have church services in the school. And we did. And shortly after we started the, the church, the secretary of the school said to me one day, she said, you do know that four other churches have tried to start in the school here and they've all had to close. Wow. And we, we not only succeeded, but grew to a church of over a thousand people. So there was something about who God had made me to be that seemed to fit with the area and the passion that I had, especially the, the passion to keep growing uh, in my professional competencies and issues, make sure that character, especially in Canada, is so important um, that people are not in Canada. They're not impressed by people that are flash in the pan. They, they want to you know, make sure that you're really substance and that uh, they can really count on you to be there. So anyways, 
there's a variety of reasons why I think God called me to that, but it, 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 it suited who I was as an entrepreneurial type person that had started my own business as well. Now, Dr. Elliott, for myself, I would suggest humbly, I hope, that uh, there are many pastors that find it a good voc vocation, and that's what they do, and they rely on God. And there's others that find it a deep calling that they couldn't do anything else because this is what God's placed on them. I would suggest, I hope, I wonder if there are going to be more and more people called into vocational ministry, whether they have a primary job or not, but really ministering because our country, our society, our culture is going through so many dysfunctions, you might say. So what are your thoughts on pastors that it's a good paying job, you aren't going to get rich, but you feel good about yourself? versus those that really have that deep sense of calling? And then the second part to that question is, do you feel as though God is calling more and more people into vocational ministry? Well, that's a, that's a great, great question. Thank you, Jeff, for asking it. I, I don't know how to, how to answer it. I have, been, I have been troubled by how few people are sensing a call to vocational ministry. Um, even here at the at the Bible College, uh, even over the last you know, roughly twenty years, the number of people that are sensing God has called me to pastoral ministries, to actually pastor a church or to plant a church, um, seems to be on the decline. There's a great passion um, to be used by God um, in parachurch ministries or opening coffee shops or you know some type of a ministry to to be helpful to individuals. Um, they're really important. Now, God used them in evangelism. God used them in discipleship. But the number of people that God is calling into pastoral ministries, I've been, I've been curious to know why it appears the number seems to be going down rather than the going up because the need is so great. Um, this is not a reflection on anybody. It's just an observation. Um, Helen and I, actually, I'm sitting at my kitchen table right now. A number of months ago, Helen and I sat down and we, we made a list of everybody that we knew in our church in Canada that God had called into ministry and had gone off to Bible college or had done some ministry preparation. And we came up with a list of about 24 or 25 people during our 22 years that we were in Canada that God had called into some type of a ministry uh, preparation. Since we left the church, I don't know how many people God has called. I, I'm not hearing hardly of any, and I don't know why that is. I do know this, that I used to pray fervently that God would use our church as a pool from which he would draw people out into ministry. Yes. And, and I think God honored that request because we were actively praying, God, please call people out of our church into ministry roles. And that's not to that's not to diminish business in ministry, that ministry is business and all the rest of that kind of that's stuff, true. marketplace ministries. Mm -hmm. um, but vocational, full-time vocational ministry where God has got to call in somebody's life to either pastor an existing church or to plan a new church, uh, those numbers seem to be going down. I am very, very thankful for uh, many of the churches that are planning satellite campuses. Um, I think that's clearly one of the waves of the, of the future and some of the creative expressions. I, I know of a church that 
was uh, somebody tried to start a church in downtown Toronto using um, gaming as the basis of reaching out into their community. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I acknowledge that God uses creative means, but at the end of the day, they need to be gathering for worship, for discipleship, for evangelism, for pastoral care, to be offering the sacraments. And uh, I know God still gives spiritual gifts of pastor shepherd. I know he still yeah. does. He's, he's never stopped that, just like he's never stopped giving some people gifts of evangelism. By the way, I'll just divert just a little bit here to say it's very confusing to me why churches have stopped using evangelists. Um, that is just mind-boggling to me. Um, there are people that are gifted in evangelism that seems like they can open their mouth and say, Mary had a little lamb, and people <laughs> say, what must I do to be saved? You know, I don't have a gift of evangelism. I've led lots of people to the Lord, but I'm not a gifted evangelist, but some people really are. I've got a very good friend, Tony Hedrick. He's a free Methodist minister, and just astounding, like, how frequently God gives him opportunities. And he's right now over in Europe uh, doing street ministry, uh, sharing the gospel. So anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, Jeff. I'm sorry. I don't even remember what your original question was. No, this is, this is great. And uh, I find it so um, encouraging as a local church pastor in Vermont, in the Northeast, and with a smaller congregation that we're trying to regather, reassemble after COVID. But understanding it is not our best efforts, but it's our best efforts surrendered in Jesus, allowing him what to be, who he is. And that mm -hmm. is the God of miracles and praying that he would unite the hearts to who he is, not just to who we are. As we wrap up, just a couple questions, then I'll let you go. Thanks again for being so generous with your time. And Dr. Okay. Elliot, I just think about um, the need for pastors to learn so whether it's they are comfortable enough with themselves that they can raise up somebody within their congregation that has a calling without being intimidated by that person or by allowing them to say, hey, I've never identified as charismatic or Pentecostal, but I certainly want Jesus to be Jesus in this place. Where is that balance or how do you how does one learn or what does it take for one to learn that how I've done it? It hasn't worked, and now I need to change, even though some might label me as being, quote, Pentecostal or charismatic. Yeah. Well, I, of course, I would say my journey started with my own Bible study on, on the topic, and that's what ultimately convinced me of, um, of how important uh, it was to lean into the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm a ferocious reader. Um, it would not be uncommon for me uh, during the, especially during the summer months, I would read like 12 to 15 textbooks of just to stay as current as I can in my understanding of church planning methodologies or pastoral ministries. Um, I never, ever stop going to the large church conferences to see how churches function at a larger level uh, than what I'm leading at and try and learn from them. Um, I do, and this is not a plug, just because you're asking for this, uh, you're, you're asking about this topic. In October, my next book is coming out. Um, uh, it's Next Level Church, and it's talking about what changes in the life of a church as it grows. Because if we don't evolve in our mindsets and practices, uh, the practices that get us to one level will actually become a ceiling and will stop us from growing to the next level. And so I, I've identified about 32 different mindsets and practices 
that are that are evolving in a church that's a smaller church from 125 down, a church 125 to 250, 250 to 400, and then a church 400 and above. And what are those? What is changing? For instance, how a pastor uses his or her time in a small church very different than how a pastor in a larger church uses his or her time. How a church board functions in a smaller church very different as the church grows. They, they have completely different ways of operating than in, in a smaller church. How a church does welcome integration, how a church does a discipleship. Um, there's just so many different things that evolve in the life of the church. And it doesn't mean that the way that you did it formally is wrong. It's just that it's not scaled uh, to function at a larger level. And so I'll give it a little tiny example. So in a smaller church, um, if everybody in the church, say the church is 100, if everybody in the church calls me once a month, that's 100 phone calls a month. There's four weeks in a month, so it's uh, 25 calls a week. If I work five or six days a week, that means I get about five calls a day. I can handle five calls a day in a church of, of 100 people. But in a church of 1,000 people, if everybody called me in a month, I would never get off the phone. Right, right. And so the access to the senior pastor changes as the church grows. It doesn't mean that the congregation doesn't need pastoral care and attention. It just means how it's provided has to take place differently than it does in a smaller church. Um, your, your communications and the style of your worship services, like all that kind of stuff evolves. And so Wesley Press is, is releasing my next book uh, called Next Level Church in October. And it, it outlines what all is changing. But to be a voracious reader, to do our own studies, to go visit churches that are larger than we are, uh, to try and figure out why is, is God blessing something that, that maybe uh, I'm avoiding or I'm fearful of. Um, and there's a pain to change. I mean, there's just, you know, it, yeah. it's very painful to change. We lost, when we started emphasizing the person work of the Holy Spirit, like I said, we we're running about 120 people. Like we lost like seven families immediately from our church um, in Canada when we started talking more about miracle signs and wonders. Like we couldn't afford to lose seven families when you're, <laughs> when you're only 120 people. But the Lord, I knew it was right. I was absolutely convinced that we needed to lean into the person with the Holy Spirit. So we took the loss, but we immediately started growing, uh, like growing very dramatically. And the quality of the care, how, how you provide care, typically tends to increase um, as, as you grow in your understanding of how churches function. So I don't know if that answers your question, Jeff, but I'm, I'm taking a kick at the can anyways. Oh, it does. And thank you. And uh, the final question is uh, this, and it's not as simple, but what can the church in the... So Jeff, you just froze on me here. I don't know if you can still hear me, but you just froze. And I'm not hearing what your question is. 